Have you ever wondered why you're not making a podcast? Maybe because you think it's too hard. Well, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. And there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I mean, you're immediately in the podcast game. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So right now, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Just go to A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M and join me on Anchor. Hey, it's Jim, and I am so happy to announce that production of Season 4 of Euphemed is now in full swing, and the first episode will debut on Thursday, March 11th, a new season with new episodes every other week. What this means is that if you like listening to Night Drift, you'll need to find it at its now new home on its own feed. Just search for Night Drift wherever you listen to podcasts. But until then, enjoy this bonus episode, Night Drift, with the creators of Video Palace. And we'll see you right back here on Thursday, March 11th for the new season of Euphemed. and the edge of the world, Euphemet presents Night Drift with Jim Perry. I'm Jim Perry, and you are listening to Night Drift, presented by Euphemet. Tonight, a conversation with the creators of the hit podcast Video Palace, Michael Manello, producer on The Blair Witch Project, and Nick Brasia. They have a new book called Video Palace in Search of the Eyeless Man and that is super strange and pulls a ton of influence from real paranormal events. We'll ask them about that and much more with my co-host Darcy Staniforth right now on Night Drift. Nick is a Cannes Lion and Clio winning writer, director, and producer. In 2018, he co-created and co-executive produced the horror podcast Video Palace for AMC Network's streaming service, Shudder, our friends at Shudder. While working at the marketing, marketing agency Campfire, he helped to develop immersive narrative experiences for TV shows like Outcast, Sense8, Watchmen, The Man in the High Castle, Westworld, and The Purge. Wow. Some really, really excellent programming. Yeah. And just some I had a, I gotta say though, I had a really terrible boss <laughs> during that period of time. I was work I was working with Mr. Manello over yeah, there. Yeah. Fantastic. And then you see Michael, he is a pioneer in immersive storytelling. <laughs> In the late 1990s, Manella and his partners at Haxon Films created the Blair Witch Project, a little movie most of you may know about. A story told across multiple media, which became a pop culture touchstone. Yes, indeed it did. Manella then co-founded Campfire in 2006, and I guess was a terrible boss, according to... <laughs> the he's worst. A, he's- <laughs> In which uh, creates groundbreaking participatory stories and the experiences for TV shows such as True Blood, Game of Thrones, The Purge, The Man in the High Castle, Westworld, Hunters, and more. He co-created and co-executive produced what we're talking about tonight, 
Video Palace, a scripted fiction horror podcast for Shudder. Okay, so right off, within that within that phrase there, a scripted fiction horror podcast for Shudder, is there something about me even calling it scripted fiction at this point in time that just maybe gives you like a little bit of a tinge of sort of like frustration or a, a, like a feeling of, of broken kayfabe, right? Uh, I, lo- I love that you're talking kayfabe because it's something Mike and I discussed ahead of, ahead of this podcast. Cause the, no- the notion of kayfabe uh, is I, I try to, I try to think in that context uh, for work. Is it safe to assume your, your, your audience, Jim is familiar with the term. I would love for right. us to explore what that term means, where it came from, and how it applies to this. Uh, let's hold that for a minute. Yep. And first, let's just talk about real quick, like, let's talk about Video Palace. Yep. Explain to us the podcast, Video Palace. I'm sure a lot of these folks have listened, as it really is kind of like a fictional version of the documentary program that I do called Euphemet. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so let's talk about uh, how that all started for you folks, what that's about, and, and where we sit with it. Do you want to kick it off, Mike? I'll jump sure. in with color. Okay. Sure. Um, so the Video Palace podcast um, really started out it's a, 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 ever since podcast started. Uh, I've been an avid listener, and um, and I'd been wanting to explore fiction podcast for a long time, but quite frankly, as as things happen, the day job comes in. And then when you think about a fiction podcast, you're talking about a lot more money than a traditional podcast. Because you can't, you know, like right now, we're all speaking on pretty good mics. And I'm sure the sound is going to is going to be great. But when you're doing it scripted, you've got to got to hire actors, you've got to rehearse, you've got to have a studio, you've got to sound design and pay a composer and all that good stuff. Um, and so it's very expensive. So it kind of seemed without reach for a long time until uh, we got we started working with Shudder, um, kind of um, talking to them about various ideas uh, that could help promote Shudder. And at one point, um, they mentioned that they were just charged with doing podcasts. So uh, we had some podcast ideas, of course, uh, because we'd been talking about doing that kind of thing for a long time. And so uh, when we had the opportunity, they introduced us to, uh, they actually reintroduced me to someone that I knew from before, but didn't know was at Shutter at the time, named <laughs> Owen Shiflett, uh, who was head of programming. And so uh, we sent over kind of a, we said, hey, you know, it's great to meet. We have an idea. Uh, want to talk to you about it. He kind of sparked that idea and he says, give me some more. And so we put together uh, a longer pitch. I'd say like a page and a half pitch of the story that was missing a lot of holes and didn't have an ending. It was kind of like, you know, and it'll all wrap up. Um, (laughs) But it was, you know, it had, it had, you know, the initial kind of setup um, um, for the series that, you know, which didn't change much. And, uh, and we pitched it to Owen, who said, this is great. I'm really liking this. couple of things. We're not going to green light anything until uh, you have an ending. You have to be able to tell us the ending. <laughs> and, uh, and we said, okay, that's great. What else do you need to give us a green light? And he said, well, I'd need to know, uh, you know, let's say it's about 10 episodes. Let's say it's about 30 to 45 minutes. And I was like, how about 15 to 30? Because I'm not a big fan of super long podcasts. Yeah. I'm a much bigger fan of like, leave them leave the audience wanting more. So, yep. and, and, and we wanted to make this um, 
an easy binge. We wanted to make it that if you wanted, like that when an episode was done, you were in, you just wanted to roll right into the next one. Right. And so, um, so they said, okay, 30, 30 minutes could be a sweet spot. I mean, we ended up coming in under for the most part on, yeah. on most of the episodes and that, but, um, um, and he said, so he said, we, we need to know what happens in all 10 episodes. So how you break the story. And then we need to know that you've got an ending. Um, that's satisfactory. Yeah. And so we created like a 10 or 11 page document that had like some characters that had the outline um, of what could happen. As you can imagine, right? It's like the story's three hours. So there's like 180 plus pages and our, our treatment was 10 pages. So it was, it was, um, it, it, it had most of the bases, but it definitely still had holes missing there, but uh, they approved it. And so uh, we went, we basically said, all right, we're in. And it was really yeah. fast. And from that point, we brought in uh, we brought in some folks that we had worked with in the past. We brought in uh, Ben Rock, who uh, I'd worked with uh, um, on Blair Witch Project. And many, I knew him from my days in Orlando as an indie filmmaker, and mm. he's in LA now. And I knew that Ben, who's directed movies and who um, who directed some of the kind of Blair Witch extensions that um, came off of the second movie, the movie we didn't do, the 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 um, second sequel. Right. And um, and of course, we worked together because um, Ben wrote and I um, edited and produced Curse of the Blair Witch, which was the right. the hour long documentary fake documentary about the fake documentary yeah. that was Blair Witch yeah yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. which is fantastic by the way yeah oh, thanks and um and so and 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 you know new Ben would be would be perfect for this and then he brought on uh uh Bob DeRosa his co a co-writer with him who had experience in tv um and then we brought in a producer named Liam Finn and that kind of made up the core team from there uh Ben and Bob started to actually break the story into actual scripts while uh, Nick and I continued the, the work of campfire basically. And, um, and so at that point, I think Nick and I became, you know, kind of like almost showrunner executive producer types Mm -hmm. to use TV talk and um, worked closely with uh, Ben and Bob who just really took the story and solved the problems that were in the story. And, um, you know, created some, some, some new angles and, and whatnot. And, and, and then, you know, it was a really, really fast process of like writing scripts. I think, I think we started writing scripts in May. Was it May, Nick? Yeah, I think it was May and we were done by pretty much done by early July. Yeah. And done recording by July. And we're, I mean, you know, yeah. writing a th- three hour script is, is intense enough, but, right. uh, and, and, and done recording and then posted. And then we were basically shutter um, ended up releasing us. There was a lot of questioning as to when we were going to get released. So we ended up getting released in October of 2018. Yeah. yeah. Wow. A, a, a couple of quick points that I think are important to both the pitching and production that I think worked in our favor. Um, you know, Mike and I had listened to a lot of fiction podcasts or started to, and found that the things that, had log lines like stuff we'd be into, we weren't feeling that into and sticking mm-hmm. with. And at the same time, we were in audio production on various campfire 
projects that had different goals that had to deliver faster, more visceral experiences. Stuff like uh, P- Possession Begins, a binaural audio experience for Outcast. Oh, um, I wrote and directed a series of, of binaural prophecies uh, for, I guess, season six of Vikings on History Channel. Mm-hmm. And then we had this deluge of... Um, immersive alternate universe radio content, um, a project that was led by Steve Colson, uh, one of our collaborators, great creative director at, at Campfire, but that Mike, Mike and I were very, you know, we're also very involved. So we were learning uh, the ropes of sticky audio content, hmm. um, you know, a year, two years, two and a half years before we went in with this pitch. So when yeah. we did pitch it to Owen Shiflet, we knew... Um, how that each episode had to really deliver, in addition to narrative, visceral audio, uh, something that we thought was an immersive audio, so, right. to, you know, something that we thought was missing from a lot of the, frankly, and not to their fault, lower budget enterprises in, in fiction storytelling. With sure. the script happening so quickly, this is a real, I don't want to call it a happy accident because I think it was, I think it's the genius of Ben Rock, but man, the, it sure helped with the timing in that so many of the scripted fiction podcasts, they feel very scripted and theatrical and like radio drama. Right. Um, ben, he's so great with actors and has such terrific instincts that for a lot of the portions of dialogue between, you know, our main characters, Mark Cambria and Tamara Wolf and other key characters in this, in the actual script, Ben's provi- ben provides the gist, and they very naturally came up with the way that character would convey it. And yeah. we didn't worry so much about them nailing, you know, them nailing every line. So that helped us in performance in short amount of time achieve a real verisimilitude. It also meant in the scripting process we could be a little bit, you know, a little bit looser. What really needs to be there on the page and what are they going to do in the studio? Knowing that with Ben's terrific chops, that there was the confidence that we're going to get great stuff in the limited studio time that we have. Yeah, how amazing. And and in a way that the speed of production that you all uh, were able to experience with this, did it kind of like leave you hungry to just produce more of this content or were you a little spent... <laughs> I mean, because like for, for those, for, for those listening, the amount of time that it takes to produce a feature length film or a feature documentary series or pitching TV for a million fucking years, this shit takes so much time, but with podcasting, yeah, it takes some time, but the amount of what you can create in such little amount of time is, is absolutely breathtaking sometimes. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, um, I think speaking for myself and I'm pretty sure Nick and Bob and Ben and Liam all feel the same way. I think we found it to be incredibly satisfying. Um, you know, and for, for Bob and Ben in particular, I think it was their first audio only, uh, 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 experience mm. the first time doing it mm-hmm. for, for, for Nick and I, as he said, this was not our first, uh, rodeo and audio only, but it was, but, um, it, it was, it was, it was, it was, I think it was a combination of, of learning from the process that was very exciting and then getting it out there quickly, which was really exciting because even frankly, in the marketing work we do, sometimes it seems like things drag and take forever, right? Like I'm (laughs) still working on a project that started at the beginning of summer. It's not out yet. You know, it's like, oh, and you know, it's, it's not nearly as much content as the podcast was right <laughs> <laughs> you know um and um 
but I think, uh, so it was very, very exciting. And, but more importantly to me was the reaction to it because, you know, it's one thing to make something and then you put it out there. But for me, it was the reaction to the podcast was so fulfilling because we found that, you know, even though we weren't a, a, a big hit in, in a traditional sense of the, of the way a podcast can be a hit, I think we've been a, a what I would call a slow burn. People still yeah. keep discovering the podcast, but um, the reactions to it have been really, really positive overall. And that is, um, that's kind of like, as I think as a storyteller, that's the ultimate reward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. we just hit, uh, we just hit a thousand five-star reviews on iTunes this week. And that's, that's something we pay. I mean, it's something that means a lot to us because mm-hmm. as you know, we, we're not just audio guys, Mike and I, I mean, Mike came up in film, obviously I came up in prose and as a copywriter, we just want to be really great craftspeople and compelling, immersive storytellers, whatever the canvas is. And that just the kind of feedback of complete strangers saying like job well done. I'd like more of that. Like that's, you know, that that's as good as it gets. And it's also fun to, especially if you know that the majority of people like it, I'm fine with reading those one star reviews and sending those around too. It's uh, <laughs> like, it goes, it goes with the territory and it gives you calluses. So yeah. Yeah. But, but I think I think that's really a testament to the storytelling that y'all put into that script because as somebody who it's absolutely binge-worthy, I absolutely agree because it was just like you wanted to roll one into the next because you were like, "Oh, here's this mystery at the heart of it," right? Because there's the mystery at the heart of it. And as a film school nerd myself, I'm like, Oh yeah, we all know the obsessive tape collectors and the obscure thing and your friend that passed you a VHS and said like you got to check this out. No one's ever seen that. So those details were also so real. And I think that's the challenge with sometimes a lot of the, the scripted fiction podcasts is that like, I'll be listening. And then suddenly I'm like, that's not a real detail. And it takes me right out of it. Right. But I feel like with video palace, the details were so like beautifully subtle that it was like, yep, I totally get that. And I absolutely know what that means. And it's like, it had enough um, inside indie film nerd language to be like, yeah, those are my people. And I totally get why you would drive three hours to a place to watch movies. But also I think for people that don't even come from that world, that also helped really still hook them in because like even in the simplest moment of explaining the clamshell, like <laughs> someone may not have known what a clamshell is, but as soon as you say it's the puffy case that kids movies come, everybody knows that. <laughs> Everyone knows that. And I was just like, Oh, it's so brilliant. Yeah. Well, it's, it's painting that, vi- that visual connection with, with some sort of substrate that, that you don't quite always get in audio. Like there is an opportunity to, to allow people to really feel what you're telling them and not by like, what they're feeling inside and oh i have emotions but like feel what that what what that is and i think i think that comes across really brilliantly and for those of you who haven't had an opportunity to check out video palace of course check it out uh, but but to s- sort of summarize or at least give you a perspective of the tone and tenor of this production you know it gave me a similar feeling to when i watched blair witch at first because even though uh, and listen, maybe a little bit different because I didn't know where things were going with Blair Witch. Like I was still young enough where I was like, I don't, is th- this is real. This is absolutely, 
But with this production, there were moments in time where it was like, I knew this was fiction. But there were parts of that where I was like, I, is it? I don't know. Is this re- like, is this a real guy? Like what is happening here? You know? And so th- yeah. those sort of like, uh, uh, we can talk about wrestling in a minute because it, it, it definitely harkens <laughs> back to that, you know, that suspension of disbelief where that mm. magic is created there was so palpable and so interesting. It sometimes will, uh, it, for me, sometimes it even frustrates me because I'm like, no, I shouldn't have, I'm a creator. I shouldn't have these feelings. But then it pulls you in in that way. Um, what I think is really brilliant about that, guys, is that that is exactly how the real phenomenon really works. The paranormal phenomenon. It has an ability to be a trickster. It has the ability to lure you in with half-truths and mythology and lore until you have a personal experience sometimes yourself that leaves you questioning what the nature of reality could truly be. And that's where a lot of people find themselves that have experienced real paranormal activity in which we cover all the time, in which I travel the world, like doing these documentaries about. And so I think you nailed it, but I'm curious if that is what you meant to nail. I think, and then I'll, I'll just speak briefly and then I'll let Mike chip in. It's, I think it's sort of just in our DNA, the way that we tell stories and when we got this group together, there are truths all throughout the Video Palace story. The piano tuner is pulled from the friend of a friend, someone that I had to track down in, in New York who people thought had gone missing. The notion mm-hmm. of the devil's tritone was discussed between Ben and the actress um, who played Cat, who's actually an accomplished musicologist and singer. Like lots of those details, the whole Vermont area, I used to spend a lot of time up in Brattleboro and Townshend, Vermont, in that area. Like there's, there's true, I mean, there's always, you know, there's always uh, truth, truthful lies and, <laughs> and, cur- and kernels, uh, kernels of terror and details that um, are, in, are in your palate as, as a storyteller and you, you know, you, you paint with those, but then you also have to combine it with the propul- with the narrative propulsion needed to keep people leaning forward. And I don't, I wouldn't, I'd say that that's something that we at this point do reflexively or unconsciously more than we sit around and we're not like, okay, what's all the wild stuff that happened to me? It's like, you know, I got, I'm, do, I'm doing an index card session with Ben and Bob to figure this thing out. Like, and there's a few things I put into treatment, but what, like, what else can I draw from? What are they going to draw from? You had, this was a real collaboration in that you had a half a dozen people, not even including the talent who put their own, you know, personalities and their own, their own work into it. Um, putting this, this narrative, this tapestry together, like Mike and I certainly set up the rules, but we all colored it in with our own truths. And I think that that's why one of the reasons why it's got that authenticity. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the other thing is, um, I kind of think of what you're talking about as like a, that sense of immersion, you know, when you're, when you, you know, and it happens any, you read a good book and I'll, you look up and you realize, Oh my God, I've been reading for four hours. And you didn't even realize that much time went by, you know, right. it's like that. And um, I, that's something we've been trying to do in our work for a long, long time. And sometimes we, in our practice, it happens with physical events or experiences that we have to create. And what's really interesting is that when you're telling a story through experiences, you get used to um, creating a vivid, detailed world and then leaving holes so that people bring their own narrative to it. Yes. And, and 
Blair Witch Project, like the mythology, if you go all the way back to Blair Witch, like the mythology that was posted on the internet was like, had 60 year holes, you know, 40 to 60 year holes in between each event of the, of the Blair Witch. And, and there was minimal information posted. It was like just enough for that you could picture what had happened, but yet there's so many right. questions. Right. And, and, you know, the approach in Video Palace is kind of the same way in the sense of like, it's important for drama for there to be intimate moments and that you believe, you know, Mark and Tamara's relationship and that you believe these characters are really doing these things and that they have their, their motivations for doing it and they're not just doing it because someone thought it was good for the plot, right? So those are all the intimate moments that are so important. But at the same time, we, we had this mythology that had been kind of worked out of the eyeless man and the stack um, of which we gave very little. There's a lot more information in the book actually than in the podcast about those things. Um, and we gave very little, which I, I think creates that sense of like vastness that these stories that really have the capability of taking us away, but it has the detail to not, you know, as Darcy said, take you out of it. So it's like the detail makes it feel real. And then the vastness is space for for us to project our own emotions and experiences and thoughts and feelings towards it. Yeah. And like, you know, I think to me, Video Palace, even though it was always going to be acknowledged fiction, it was a little bit like Blair Witch and that one of the guiding principles of Blair Witch was we never wanted to show anything that could be pointed at and say, see, it's 100% supernatural. And we never wanted to show anything that someone could point at and go, see, it's just humans out there messing with the kids. Right. And the idea was like, <laughs> ride that line so that whichever, whichever direction you wanted to take with it, it, the story would work for you, you know, or at least you would be able to argue the point, but never right. really be able to get to a decision about it. Right. Which right. is the great mystery at the, at the, you know, at the heart of all this stuff. And, and so I think, you know, Video Palace to me has that, it has that, that sense of there's something much, much bigger than this story out there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but also it is an intimate story about these people who are stuck dealing with this thing that Mark, you know, this Pandora's box that Mark opened yeah. or press play on. And that's like the other, like kind of these layers to it too. And I don't want to spoil it in case folks have not listened through, but it definitely rides that line. And I will say that at the ending, like leaves us with that line, but also you, like, I found myself thinking about these characters about like, are we going to, is it going to be like unsolved mysteries where they're going to be like update? Like that's, that's where I was really like <laughs> feeling with that. And I think that is a really magical thing. Cause sometimes we've seen, we've all seen films or read books or even listen to podcasts where you're going and that line is being walked so nicely and you're like, ah, oh, yeah. And then they're like, tie it up with a bow. And then you're like, I didn't, you didn't need to do that. Thanks for So thanks for not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is respecting your audience. And it's allowing them to be immersed and be okay with it. I think it's interesting that I think the, the people who have not liked the podcast, have, their biggest complaint was that they felt like we gave them a cliffhanger ending and that hmm. we didn't answer enough questions. So, you know, there, there's, there's definitely, I think, a good, there's obviously, I think, based on the reaction, there's a lot of people who are absolutely fine 
with having some unanswered questions, but there's also, there are a lot of people who really want that, that, that bow tied neatly for them. And, um, and when you don't give it to them, it throws them off balance. Yeah. I think the things that were most important to Mike, and these are things we hold dear is, is creators are ambiguity. There's so much power in ambiguity. And to, I think, to what Mike was alluding to earlier, the notion of white space, white space for listeners. Um, you know, anytime you're triggering a sense, a sense of wonder uh, or terror, you give them an opportunity to project their feelings. That's something that you can really ruin with too much lore, with lore bombs, with narrative <laughs> density, with mm-hmm. rules and all that stuff. Um, like for me, the po- it is a complete story. Like Mark, there is a complete story you know, beginning, middle, and end of Mark Cambria there. But the world of The Atlas Man, the world of Video Palace, you know, to compare it to a franchise that's current, that's uh, the reboot's coming out soon or, or what have you. You know, I like I liken it to Candyman where that's, it's the story of the Virginia Madsen character, but you cannot, you cannot contain the myth and the potency of, you know, of that Tony Todd Candyman character. Um, just in just in that terrific feature or in the or in the short story there's more you know there's there's potentially more to be told there they get into his origin more than we do certainly with the eyeless men but the video palace mythos and the eyeless man are, are much bigger than mark cambria's story which i do think you know as i said earlier has has a beginning middle and end and i would certainly li- liken uh, the potential scope to the, the scope of something like you know like candy man or other um you know other like really really rich and uh, really rich urban legends that can go in all sorts of disparate directions and have different cultural interpretations. And it kind of gets into where, where we started to take it and expanding the world with the book. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Mike and Nick from Video Palace right after this. Follow Night Drift with Jim Perry on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. So winter's chill has returned again, and you're stuck inside, and you need something to make you feel alive. Maybe scare you a little bit, remind you of how precious life really is. And the Netflix of horror, Shudder, is perfect for this. With new supernatural terrors, edge-of-your-seat thrillers, and shocking horrors added every week, I just watched Host, and you can watch it now too and try Shudder for free for 30 days. Go to Shudder.com and use promo code Euphemen. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and the promo code, the title of this show, Euphemed. I mean, get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes must-see titles like the Mortuary Collections, plus all the best horror documentaries and the hit Creep Show TV series from executive producer Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. And it's only $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. And right now you can watch Spectre Vision's Color Out of Space and hell, make it a double feature and watch Mandy right after. You can watch the second season of A Discovery of Witches. Shudder is really such a unique collection of films and shows, many of them being exclusive to Shudder. 
I mostly watch on my Apple TV, but you can get unlimited access to stream ad-free on all of your favorite devices. And you can try Shudder for yourself for 30 days for free and help support Euphemet while you do it. Just go to Shudder.com and use promo code Euphemet. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com. Use promo code Euphemet. And, you know, let's get through the winter together. Hello, Night Drift listeners. This is Ryan Singer, host of Me and Paranormal You, and one of the creators of Crystallize. What is Crystallize? Crystallize is the world's first crystal identification app coming to a phone near you very, very soon. The waiting list is live now. Crystallize.app backslash early access or follow on Instagram or Twitter at Crystallize app. And that's Crystal E-Y-E-S app. And why is it called Crystal Eyes? Because we're going to be able to take photos of the crystals that you have forgotten And the app will tell you what it is. The Shazama Crystals, baby. We are so excited about this. You're going to have a personal collection section. You're going to have a database with over 300 crystals to be able to learn and find information. And our favorite part, we are going to be connecting you with retailers, vendors, and other organizations, along with breaking news about ethically sourced crystals. It's time to feel good about feeling good and no longer by stones that are meant for healing when they've been sourced from harm. Oh, we are so excited. Join the waiting list today to get one month free of premium features just by signing up. Crystallize.app backslash early access. Now let's get back to Night Drift with Jim Perry. And the edge of the world, Euphemet presents Night Drift with Jim Perry. Real quick, before we get to the conversation, I wanted to let you guys know about this new feature in the Spotify app. If you go on to a Euphemet episode with a question, you can now comment or answer those questions right within the Spotify app. So check it out. I'm going to have one set up for this episode as well as the last episode. Use it. Answer the question. Tell your story. Let us know. And now back to the conversation. Here, here's where I think you guys are doing something way different, though. Okay, mm-hmm. when I watched that movie, I know that Candy, I know that Candyman is not real, but I know that people are going to listen to this podcast and think it's real. 
to to use this parlance they're gonna think it's a shoot man yeah and i think in that way just like creepypasta has been introduced to the internet in various forms and we see phenomenons like slender man like actually appear within the construct of our popular consciousness in in really profound and, and sometimes even like really tragic ways um is is there ever a sense uh from you guys that uh creating this lore and leaning into that kayfabe right and that suspension mm-hmm. of disbelief is allowing for an opportunity to for some of this stuff to become real i i hope so i <laughs> well, you know what that's a true story there's a very uh very well known horror writer that we approached to contribute a story to the book Mm -hmm. thought about it. And, you know, one of the not rules, but one of the parts of the sandbox was that we wanted the writers to write the story, their their story, either as it happened to them or as it happened to one of their friends and they heard it or as they witnessed it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, that aspect creeped the writer out the idea of like that he was going to write it as he experienced it. Creeped him out so much, she said he begged off. Stepped off for two days. He worked himself into a shoot, brainstorming it, and then, <laughs> and, then and then was too was too spooked to continue. Lo- lovely guy, terrific writer. Not gonna yeah, great writer. His name, um, but I was like, all right, we're onto something. <laughs> well, because horror creates that dissidence for us, right? Like usually we use horror or, you know, suspense or thrillers or things like that to give us space to process things. But to be like, oh, no, 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 that's, I was going to write like a totally another character was going to experience that. But to really own that and say, this is the terror I lived. This is the horrifying experience I lived. That's too close for a lot of people. It, yeah. yeah, it is. And that's, I like that. I like that we got the people, you know, a tiny bit uncomfortable and they were most of the, you know, everyone who agreed to do it is someone who is obviously willing to, uh, to travel, to travel there. But going, going back to the, the notion of shoot and kayfabe, it's the vast majority of the people who are going to come into contact with it. Mark, you know, Mark Cambria's documentary style, Maynard, the professor Maynard Wills, who's missing at the new school and his, um, and his teaching assistant, Daniel Carter, uh, who are, you know, who are present in the book. Um, you know, they're, they're real people. If you're not engaging in, in back in backstage behind the scenes, uh, and industry type conversations. Most people are, are interested in experiencing the work. They don't care about Mike and I. <laughs> they don't. They don't want to know how the sausage is made. And for for those, we we want to set up and respect their desire um, to suspend their disbelief. For me, that's that's the thing that's key to respect. I to, I I love suspending my own disbelief. I love you know I love ghost stories. I love horror movies. I can I can scare myself very very. And, and I like embracing entertainment. I mean, Lake Mungo, I, which I watched. I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Have you guys seen that? The, it's a doc, doc, documentary style um, ghost movie out of Australia. No, um, from like 2011. I, I mean, definitely look it up. It's amazing. It's about a family talking. It's about a family's experience, um, maybe or maybe not being haunted by the ghost of their 14 year old daughter who drowns in the first. Mm. You know, and, and that's what the movie's about. At 
I think I saw it 10 years ago. I was like 34. I watched the second half of it under the covers on my, on my iPad, knowing, this, <laughs> knowing that this was a, this was a fiction. Fix, they, did, they did such a great job and I, and I embraced the experience. So I think that as long as you res- respect people's desire um, to suspend their disbelief, then, then that's great. We, didn't, we don't feel the need um, with these projects to, you know, we may play coy in some, in some instances, um, but we're not trying to put one over on anybody. Yeah, right. Nick, can you explain a little bit what kayfabe is for those that don't, uh, yeah, don't understand? What sure. And I'm not a hard, I'm not a hardcore carny, but I've been. I know Jim's involved in the in the wrestling biz. I, I grew up uh, in the shadow of Titan Tower, which is where D- uh, WWE has been housed in in Connecticut, and I've been following the business basically my whole life. Um, kayfabe is the code that started in, I guess, in the in, in Carney times, um, and and crossed over into wrestling at least through the, until really the last decade, where stuff started to get a little messy. It's the idea of 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 really playing playing everything straight and not giving away not giving away secrets in wrestling, for example, although all the guys may get along fine behind the scenes, good guys and bad guys guys would stay in different hotels. Bad guys would be kind of mean to kids and not sign autographs. It's just, it's, it's just kind of living, you know, living the gimmick or just always respecting the business because by doing that, you're really respecting and cherishing people's desire to suspend their disbelief and also give all of the power not take anything away from the guys in the ring or on the microphone who are trying to tell their stories because that's what's going to put butts in seats and generate revenue for everybody. So the kayfabe was sacred. Um, And I still think it's something that's, I still think it's something that that's really, really important and to be respected, even though people know they can still, um, you know, you, a, a great, uh, a great immersive, you know, wrestling match, great immersive story, whatever it is, should be able to capture the imagination and, and, and take you away from that. There's no need to, to play spoiler with that or to start from a position of, well, everybody knows, so why bother? Like right. that's that's the thing that, that, which is what I think is has been happening in, in wrestling to a large degree um, and why, you know, feuds don't have the sizzle that they used to um, because I think the, the performers and producers behind the scenes um, don't don't think that that the fans want to see like a simulation of hatred <laughs> when they when they, they when they do when we all when we all do anyway right. that, was, that was a digression I hope that was enough detail about kayfabe no, well said why why it matters yeah well said yeah well said uh, a, a brief side note about about wrestling and its relationship to to not only horror but the paranormal. And and the other side potentially is you know a lot of a lot of folks will ask me well it's kind of weird that you do a sort of a paranormal like sort of academic like documentary program and then you're over here like running indie wrestling shows with a bunch of punk rockers and then I tell them that not really because wrestling to me is legitimately one of the most esoteric art forms that I've ever encountered in my life. You have individuals that are live in a commune-like setting, um, in ritual, in participation of this sort of shared magical work of what's going on, this uh, creative parade that's happening that is expressing itself as being completely real while everyone does their best to play their part and believe that it's real while also knowing exactly that it's not. And being completely okay with that, and 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 just being a part of that whole um, 
they're a part of that theater. They're a part of that play. And in that way, I think it's very similar to what you guys have done with this show because you're not just asking folks to, you know, suspend their disbelief, but you're asking them to continue following this journey, um, not just within the podcast, but now with this book. And so tell us a little bit about how these stories are now translating into yet another media form and that, you know, it's just more to track and more to sort of suspend your disbelief with. Yeah. And let me get to that. Oh my God, you kicked that up. But I just wanted to acknowledge, Jim, when I saw your background with Defy and wrestling, it actually, it did make perfect sense to me. <laughs> I said, and I said that to Mike, because I think, I mean, you, I mean, you tell me, it seems like you're the, the notion of, of folk arts are, mm. are really, really interesting to you. And I feel like urban, urban legend, supernatural, paranormal stuff, as well as the narratives that play out in wrestling, which was yeah. before, you know, the, all the territories bu- got bought up was essentially a, a local parochial, you know, yeah. um, localized narrative kind of, you know, kind of business. Mm-hmm. And I, def- yep. I definitely think that there's, uh, that there's, that there's a lot of similarities there. So I, I thought it made total sense. Ah, thanks, man. So the, the book, um, the book, where to start with the book? Well, you know, the, so Shutter did the season one of the Video Pals podcast, and we were the first podcast, we were the first fiction podcast that AMC Networks put out, so, which includes like, I think, Sundance Channel and right. AMC. And, um, and, and we knew when we did it that, that they were running a test to see if it was something that was of value to them. And I think, you know, they decided to, f- to, to focus on, um, they decided to focus on video content since their platform is a video, uh, platform, which makes total sense. But it also left us, I think, wanting to do, wanting to continue that story and wanting to tell more stories in video palace. And so, um, you know, I think, uh, we all started talking about possibilities. And, and the truth is, too, is that, again, um, similar to the work at Campfire, when we think about these things, because at Campfire, we get to work in a lot of different media. And we kind of felt the same thing. We felt like we were building a mythology and we were even the stories we were talking about amongst ourselves, ways to continue the story. Um, so, some ideas felt like, nah, that would be better for something with video. That would be right. a good audio story. And then that is something else entirely. And so we uh, happen to have a, um, a huge wrestling fan buddy who uh, uh, took a job at um, Tiller Press, which is a division of Simon & Schuster. And uh, Nick and I were both in there kind of talking to them about kind of franchise building and and you know what what could be done there and and um while we were having these conversations with them uh uh we've kind of i don't remember how it happened but we kind of brought up the idea that you know we have ideas to extend the world of video pals and they said oh that sounds really interesting and so then we went back to shutter and we said hey <laughs> folks at Simon and Schuster are really interested in maybe hearing a pitch for, for a book around video palace. And to their great credit, they said, yeah, that sounds awesome. So um, we went back and we kind of pitched the overall concept of the book, which that it was written by Dr. Maynard Wills uh, that that he was doing research and that, uh, that while we wanted to have a little bit of academic flavor to it, this was not an academic book ultimately, and that he was going to engage 
uh, people that he knew who had experiences with the Eyeless Man to actually write those up as stories. Um, because, you know, ultimately as a professor of folklore, he wants to start to collect this because he says, you know, in, in his eyes, he, he's, this is an urban legend that hasn't really been well documented. Mm-hmm. And so he thought this is an attempt, a first attempt to kind of document it. And, um, you know, in particular after hearing the podcast, because, you know, for him, hearing Mark's story is the first time he kind of heard a, a first person experience really with this legend that he had been hearing <laughs> secondhand stories about. So nice. he goes about collecting the stories. He goes about kind of um, doing his own work. And, and we talked to Simon Schuster about the book would be made up of this kind of story about, you know, it would be, it would include Dr. Maynard Will's research into this interspersed with stories um, uh, that, that people had with the Eyeless Man. And, um, you know, to uh, Simon and Schuster, to their credit, they were like, this sounds awesome. Um, they loved that it was, um, that it was part of a podcast before. So they were kind of like, that's really intriguing. And so then um, we had a big meeting where we had some folks from Shudder who happened to be in New York. And we had the Simon and Schuster folks and some folks from AMC. And we all came together and discussed uh, what it could be. And everybody thought, hey, this is a great idea. So again, you know, you think about it to bring a big company like Simon and Schuster, which is owned by CBS, Viacom, and to br- and then you know, Shutter, which is AMC Networks, and to bring them together to allow us to give us the freedom to do the book, and they right. really did give us the freedom to do the book as we saw, um, was pretty remarkable. And I feel like it was one of those lightning strikes twice things. Like we pitched the podcast at a time when they were looking for it, and we had a great idea, and boom, we got to go. And then this just seemed like a perfect moment, and um, and and the contracts took a lot longer to work out because there's now <laughs> a lot of entities and I kind of, we kind of joke around, but for Nick and I, the real horror was legal right. <laughs> getting that, getting that squared away. But, um, sure. it's the scariest part of all, but, um, yeah, once we kind of got our, our, our green light, you know, in February of this year, actually, um, boom, we were off to the races and we were reaching out to authors and, um, you know, putting it all together. And at that point, I think what's, what's really interesting and, and where the relationship to um, maybe um, creepypasta comes in is that, you know, through our work in advertising, we're used to this thing called a brief, you know, which I don't know a lot of people do, but oftentimes in a brief is kind of like, here's the parameters of what we're looking for. And, uh, and so we wrote up a brief uh, that had information about the podcast and information about the mythology, kind of like here's what's been established before, and here are some things that haven't been established, but they're guide rules to make sure that everything fits. You know, because I think when you do something, it's too easy to pull a lost and just be like, we'll put it all together at the end. You know, and so we're very insistent on kind of like in 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 our world if we if we establish something as fact, then it remains fact for everything else, you know, Um, which doesn't mean we can't have stories and rumors that also come out to play, you know, in within the story as there would be in real life. But when we set something up as like, you know, if you heard what happened to Mark Cambria, that happened. It's, it didn't, wasn't a dream or anything like that. And so, um, and so there are rules to it. And so we established the rules. And then as we started to commission the stories, um, we basically, um, 
we wanted each of the authors to infuse the story with their own personality and experiences. And we took it upon ourselves to, again, act like showrunners and go, let's make sure there's a consistency in the world, a consistency in, in, in the eyeless man and the, what drives the eyeless man's attention, um, what the eyeless man does, what the eyeless man is after. And then as, and the stack as well, and like where yeah. those are. So, you know, outside of those ground rules and we established that the genre was media horror. Yeah, for, for this. So, you know, with a, with a more specific genre and those kinds of rules, um, we set about kind of putting the book together. And what's really amazing is that you find that when you, when you give creative folks those guardrails, they can create within a wide range of, of, of narratives and other points right. of view um, in the story and, and make it their own. And yet, I think when you read them, there's a consistency. And I think, you know, the information that you learn um, that I think in some cases may even make you go back and think about the podcast and what happened right. to Mark doesn't come from a character saying it. It comes from like all the stories coming together. You start to put in your head, oh, this is what drives the eyeless man. This right. is what this is what's going on with the stack. Right. And then you can go back and think. So it's never like laid out for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's within that world. It's yeah. within that world created. Yeah. And so the answers are there. We just right. say, here's the answer. Right. Uh, we're going to bring on a, a listener, Matthew, who has a, a question for you folks. Sure. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yes. yeah. Thanks, Matthew. Cool. Yeah. So I'm super stoked to go down the Video Palace rabbit hole. Um, I'm a huge geek on narrative uh, immersive audio fiction um, dating back to when I was getting bussed over to gifted class in grade school and listening to The Shadow and Sherlock Holmes, like some <laughs> of the early radio dramas. Um, but uh, I, I have obsessively listened to um, the Tannis podcast. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that or not, but it's a, a really great um, narrative fiction horror audio podcast. And I think they did four seasons of it. I've listened to like seasons one through three, uh, probably 20 times. I tend to <laughs> fall into ruts where I like listen to or watch the same thing over and over again, but um, excited to check out video palace and um, two things. I was able to contribute uh, voiceover to a horror narrative fiction audio podcast that um, was being produced here in Kansas city last month called the Elmwood strain. It's about okay. the supernatural fallout um, from a school shooting in a small Midwest town. Wow. And uh, I got to have a lot of fun with that as a voice talent. And then um, something you said about unanswered questions and ambiguity um, struck a chord with me because I made my first um, indie horror feature film and um, released it this year. And I keep hearing you know about unanswered questions and ambiguity and it's become like the biggest i don't know it's a huge challenge to figure out where the line is about how much information you reveal what you keep ambiguous and you know i kind of worry that i might have lost some of the power of the intent of the film by disguising things too much it's just been a crazy concept to try to figure out yeah wow what a great question First, congratulations um, on all Thank of you. that. Uh, that's that's pretty that's pretty awesome. With the with the Pacific, I think it's called what is it? The Pacific Northwest um, 
that was yeah, the pod, the Pacific, Pacific Northwest, Northwest stories in Minnow Beach. Well, yeah, yeah, I I mean, know of them. I know a colleague, uh, Mark Harris, a colleague of, of Mike and, and mine for a while, um, was a big fan and listened to them. I specifically like. I think I listened to a, of a different one, a couple minutes of like Lime Town at one point, but I've actually never heard of an episode of Tannis or of uh, the Black Tapes. Maybe a couple minutes of the Black Tapes, but I know that they're well received and people often talk about them. Um, in the same, you know, in this, our, talk about video palaces being in a similar vein. Um, going, I mean, your movie's shot and cut, but with respect to like ambiguity, I think narrative ambiguity can be fine so long as tonally and thematically, you know, you know, you you know what you want, what you want to do, what your what your goal, what your goal is there, and how you want people to feel. If people are left not knowing how they're supposed to feel. That's, I mean, that's where I think things can become kind of challenging. Mike, what do you, what do you have to say about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you have to look at it. You need a, I, I, I think you need, you know, when you're playing with that line, you need to feel like at least 70% of your audience are getting what you want them to get. I think any less, and then the argument can be made that maybe you're not doing your job that well, you know, maybe 60% if you have an audience, a lazy audience, not paying a lot of attention, right? Multitasking while they're watching. But, um, but I, I, I do, that's a, I know that's a random number, but the truth is, is that you, you, um, too much ambiguity can take people out of it or it starts to feel like an ex- experimental or it start or worse. I think what people want in a story is they want to feel like the storyteller is in control. You know, and mm. when the storyteller, when it feels like the storyteller is no longer in control of the story, that's when people, you think about the later seasons in Lost, when so many people stopped watching, because I think a lot of people just felt like this, the storytellers don't have a plan. They've right. lost control of this story. There's just a lot of random things. We're never going to learn why a polar bear. We're never going to learn all these things that were really big questions that they teased us with. Right. and never gave answers to you know right. and 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 that that frustrates and that you definitely don't want that audience frustration so i think if you're hearing that a lot you might want to look the the key is not to look at what they propose as solutions because people when they get when they're giving you like ideas like what if you did this what they're they're trying to solve the problem and that should be left to you as the filmmaker and the storyteller to solve the problem. You should just think about the feedback you're getting and the solutions that people are proposing to you and kind of go, why, why are they having this? And how, what can I do? Like to give you an example in Blair Witch, the end uh, of Blair Witch, I think it's okay to talk about the end of Blair Witch now, right? It's been, I think so. I think plus years. So spoiler alert, everyone. Spoiler (laughs) spoiler alert. Um, You know, the end with, uh, Mike in the Corner was extraordinarily ambiguous. And when we screened it at Sundance that first time, there was a piece that was in the theatrical cut that was not in the Sundance cut. And it was because the ending, while it had power, it had a visceral power, it also left a lot of people with like, I, I didn't get the ending. And mm-hmm. so in the theatrical cut, we went back and we reshot in the town, you know, when Heather, Mike and Josh are talking to the townsfolk in that little store. And we shot one guy telling the story of Rustin Parr, the serial killer who uh, murdered kids. You would take two of them down in the basement. You would make one stand in the corner while he killed the other one. And, and so he tells that story early in the film, 
off the cuff. It's, it's, it's edited in with a lot of other information, some of which is good, valuable, and some of which is not. It doesn't feel like a major moment, you know, because there's no musical score to, to, you know, punch it into your head. And then at the end, only the people who really remember that specific detail from the film understood what was going on. And a lot of people still didn't. But at the end of the film, when people go, I don't understand why he was standing in the corner, there was always enough people there to go, oh, he was there because of this, you know? And people go, oh. <laughs> and, and, and so what happens is it turns, gives the audience that sense of discovery almost that they put those pieces together, which is, I think, a, a key part of narrative ambiguity. You have to let people, you have to give enough for people to be able to put it together in their heads, even if they're wrong. You know, yeah. they still need to be able to put something together. And if they can't draw enough from your story to put it all together and make it coherent, at least to them, then it's a, then it's a problem. You haven't given them enough. Yeah, if it's, wow. if it's cool, if it's okay, I'll put a link to the film in the, in the chat here. And if anybody on the chat at all has time to watch this film, I'm starved for feedback on it. Cause it's <laughs> as indie as it gets. So if anybody wants to check it out, I'll put it down here and, and thank you very much. Heck yeah. Thank you so much for sharing thank it with you, every Matthew. Matthew. And great yeah. questions. And Guys, this has been fantastic. I'm going to hand it over to Darcy to uh, sort of take it to the finish line here. But I, I do want to, I do want to say, I, I think that it, it's been so fascinating chatting with you. I think we could talk for a long time, especially going, you know, into some dark tunnels here with the esoteric nature of your work. Um, but I think at the end of the day, this is also very helpful for a lot of creatives trying to find their voice and, and uh, especially within horror and uh, dealing with ambiguity. So I, I appreciate your uh, feedback in that regard. I just, I want to talk a little bit about not only like, I love the idea of the genre of media horror. Cause that absolutely, like you said that and I was like, yep, that totally makes sense because you're dealing with multi-generations encountering this. Some of us who might be a little older who were there for the transition to, you know, like, ooh, VHS, do I have, is the beta copy available? Is that like all of those <laughs> things? But then you also have these newer generations that are discovering the quote unquote old technology. And also Hello, vinyl, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. Um, I can't wait for the emergence of eight tracks again. It will be a special day. Um, but thinking about even with the book, right. And I love how you're like, we want to give it that kind of academic tone but not overly academic, but in my field, American studies, which is the how and why of American history and culture, that just sounds right up the alley of like ethnographic research or a professor who gives like a general right. introduction, but then is saying like, oh, I went and I collected these experiences with these people. So I'm just yeah. like, French chef kiss, this sounds amazing, right? <laughs> so my question to you is thinking about culture and the space we're in right now it's been a real challenging past four years for so many reasons. And we're in this space right now. 2018 Video Palace hits. We're at that halfway mark um, in, in what may or may not change uh, in coming months, right? And uh, then this book comes out right at the end of this. So I'm wondering for you each as storytellers, as um, creators, what do you think it is in the cultural moment that Video Palace just like hooked into people and said, I need this to process these things or this mystery? 
It's a good question. Nick, you want to start? Get started oh, wow. That? You're going to lay that one on me. Um, <clears throat> I think, listen, my, at our heart, Mike and I are carnies. <laughs> like we are. We think, you know, we think like William, we think about behaviors. We think about stories. We think about culture. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't start out being like, let's make cereal meet stranger things. <laughs> but like, at the same time, we kind of made cereal meet stranger things. <laughs> you know, that wasn't necessarily intentional, but when you're, lo- when you're looking at, it was the, it was the, I think it was just like the form, the format and the story for us kind of comes out of the moment and the inspiration mm-hmm. of the details of, you know, Mark Hambria's story uh, comes from, you know, in this, in this, that's like his story specifically um, versus the the larger video palace mythos, but comes from, you know, being in New York for most of the last quarter century and there being a lot of arrest, arrested adolescents with various hobbies and obsessions and, and be, the notion of the, the, the verb binge has become, which we used earlier on the podcast and we all certainly do it. I'll do it with great British baking show for sure. And um <laughs> you know, it's become like a not negative word. <laughs> binge. Right. Like how, the, yeah. how the hell did that happen? Cause it's horrible. <laughs> it's a horrible notion. Anyway, we, you know, we, we it's a, it's a video passes a lot of things. It's a, it's a satire of the moment delivered in the medium, in the style of the moment, like, you know, brought together for the, you know, it's like the, the Mark Cambrias of the world are kind of the audience and the target. And mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm one of them. It's not, we're not coming from an air of yeah. superiority, Right. Like I often joke and I'll let Pete and Mike's probably sick of hearing the story, but the Mark Cambria inspiration, a big part of it was the amazing stories episode gathered the acorns with Mark Hamill, where mm-hmm. it seems like he's lauded for holding on to his toys and all of his childhood dreams until he's like 80. It was great when I was 11. I watched it again at 40 and I'm like, this is seriously messed up. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that was, you know, that's a big part of like, you know, I'm not, I didn't name Mark Cam, Mark Camria wasn't named after Mark Hamill, so I don't want to start that rumor. But, um, <laughs> yeah, there was some inspiration there. So I guess I'm I'm kind of uh, blithering on, but the the point is that it just seemed it seemed like the story and the medium and the message and the and the texture and aesthetic for the moment. And some of that, uh, Mike and I do uh, reflexively and purposefully, and some of it evolved uh, and took on shape as we as we were working. Yeah, you know, I, I want to add to that because they're they're Nick is correct that you know I, I, like I'm a huge fan of William Castle and I think his 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 autobiography Step Right Up I'm going to scare the pants off America is utter genius <laughs> um, and I love his movies you know I like not ironically I love them like when Film Forum here in New York would bring back the Tingler and they would have the Percepto installed it sure. was like I was there. I was first one in line so I could make sure I sat in a seat that was wired for Percepto, like the works. Right. And, um, but that said, um, the idea of media horror very much resonated, especially, you know, but by the time the podcast came out, we were already in fake news world. You know, we weren't as deep into conspiracy theory land as we are right now, but we were in this idea of fake news and what is real and what is not real. And, and, and what is the media doing to us? Right? Like, I mean, in a weird way, we're all talking about everybody's biting their nails about, about tomorrow, no matter in the U S you know, no matter which way, which side of the spectrum you fall, 
I think you're nervous about tomorrow because we're super divided. And we know that 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 division has been sowed, um, you know, that the media has has a part in that. Let's face it, our politicians and our political parties and the stat structure has a is is manipulating it. So they're doing it really through the media. But but the media has been a channel for that. And I think in, in, in particular, all the all the lovely potential that everyone saw on the Internet. You know, and everybody bought into like even the Silicon Valley idea of like we're changing the world and we're going to do this and <laughs> connecting people is so great. And now we're all like, yeah, this whole connecting people thing, not so great. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're starting to see the, the, the downside to that. And I, and I do think even though we purposely did not want to address it specifically in Video Palace, I think that's that's certainly driving it, right? This idea that I think we're in a period of time now where it's hard to trust what you see in the media. And I'm not talking about mm. just people lying, but when you look at technologies like deep fake and what like, yeah. I, I, I almost can't even trust what I'm seeing with my own eyes anymore. Right. Um, and I, I think that video palace kind of taps into that. Like, what is this doing to us? What is all this time we're spent? What is the doom scrolling doing to us? Because it's just, we're taking in so many pieces of media at such a faster rate than ever before that, you know, on some level you go, well, that just can't be good. Like, there's no substance on the planet except for, you know, oxygen, I think, where you can take it in, take in as much as you possibly can and not have some side effects. <laughs> I would so, describe it. Yeah, it's it's one of the eyeless man's favorite foods, <laughs> that, kind, that kind of energy. He feeds yeah, on sure. all. And that's why we love this. This mythology is he feeds on all sorts of irresponsible media misbehavior. Right. It can be very, very personal. It can be self-indulgent. It can be you know, pure about fantasy and control, or it can be about manipulation. All of those, all of those things are within his purview and his realm. And wh- there are certainly stories. I mean, I think of, of Bob DeRosa's story, uh, Deep Focus, in the book, which some people have pointed out as their as their favorite. And Bob, of course, also is the co-writer of the podcast. That starts to touch uh, some of the territory that I that I think you're you're speaking of, uh, Darcy, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, even the idea of the eyeless man, right? Because thinking mm-hmm. about what you're saying, Mike, about like the media and what we're taking in and all this, you know, there's the whole idea of like, you can't unsee something. And right. yet he's right. the eyeless man. Yep. Well, he's a hungry son of a bitch. And That's we're, quite- and yeah, <laughs> he's, yes, he's got a lot to feed on right now. <laughs> And as as media consumers, our our self aware our self awareness is not great. So yeah. we're all we're all, you know, one may in the mirror see an eyeless man. Right, hundred percent. Wow, self reflective, just like the paranormal abstracts of co creative qualities. Man, we could talk to you guys forever. We're gonna call it a night. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Everyone should listen, subscribe, rate, and review their podcast and also pick up this new book uh of course the link will be in the show notes so please discover yourself in in a new reality of of uh of media horror if if you would like to take a break from the real media horror that is that is happening in, uh, around you thanks so much everybody thanks and, so much uh, for having us Thank one you. La- hey are you guys gonna let me know if you ever get a real report of an eyeless man yeah I mean, you know, I don't know if you've gotten to the end of the book. Daniel Carter, who is Maynard Will's uh, research assistant, um, 
does include his email address at the end of the book and asks for stories. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there, there have, there, um, uh, uh, emails are starting to trickle in. Yeah. I'm sure so, they are. I'm sure yeah. they are. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm left with goosebumps here as we close down. Thank you so much, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to Night Drift. Thank you again to our guests, Mike and Nick, and thank you to my co-host, Darcy Staniforth. To be a part of our next live Zoom interview, join us at patreon.com slash euphonet. And remember, subscribe to Night Drift's new feed wherever you listen to podcasts. The new season of Euphemet debuts on Thursday, March 11th. Be back here on this feed for new episodes every other week. Music on the show tonight by Sleep Party People and Thor and Friends, courtesy of Joyful Noise, a record label curating adventurous music from a plethora of amazing exploratory artists. Find links in our show notes. Thank you, as always, to Shutter as well as Anchor.fm. This edition has been edited by Kyle Gilmer of Residual Audio. For everything Night Drift and Euphemet, merch and links to our social media, visit euphemet.com. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Perry, and until next time, keep looking up. Follow the show on social media at Euphemet, E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T.